Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Bethany Gilbert and I'm here with Pastor Bob Thune and special guest Kevin Huddleston of Quorum Deo Church. Every Wednesday we sit down to talk about how the gospel of Jesus Christ connects to the questions and issues of everyday life. Today is Third Wednesday Theology and we are talking about the divine and human nature of Christ. If you're a newer listener, we, on the third Wednesday, talk about theology and specifically been working our way through Herman Bovink's book, The Wonderful Works of God. Chris Hellman is on sabbatical. Dusty White is on vacation. Had to go for the lefty out of the bullpen. Kevin Huddleston coming in to relief pitch for us on the Wednesday conversation. Welcome. Welcome. Good to be here, everybody. Yeah. I've just been keeping seats warm. It's what, it's what I do around here. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing hey, has changed. That's what the bullpen relievers do. They just got to come in and throw strikes. That's so right. that's what you're here to do, throw strikes. Um, we are uh, reading chapter 16 of Herman Bovink's Wonderful Works of God, The Divine and Human Nature of Christ. Um, as we talk about this every uh, month, there's kind of a, I'm trying to do two things. Some of the listeners are reading along and sort of engaging with us. And so I want to meaningfully engage those folks, but I also realize many of you out there aren't reading this book. And so this is just a chance for you to think theologically. So without making you, you know, we do reference page numbers and stuff and read quotes, but this is one of those topics that I want to make sure is really uh, engaging, even for those of you who aren't reading along with Herman Bovink, because I think understanding the person of Christ is really foundational to worshiping Christ, to serving Christ, and to understanding how the Bible talks about Christ. And we have said repeatedly, one of the reasons I like Herman Bovink is because he is a systematic theologian who is robustly biblical. He's working out of the biblical material, and he quotes Scripture and alludes to Scripture and references Scripture, and everything he is doing is building out of the witness of the Scriptures. But he's putting it together in a systematic way, which is why this chapter is called the divine and human natures of Christ. So he's going to introduce you to what the Bible says about Jesus and also a bunch of early heresies about Jesus, and he's going to get us to the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD, and all of that is going to happen in about 30 pages. Mm-hmm. So, Kevin, mm. what did you think as you read this chapter? Is it, have you been reading along, or did you just jump in and just start in <laughs> chapter 16? You know, Bob, that's a really it's a good question. <laughs> good question. That's uh, the first thing you say in a podcast when you're about man, to nuance your answer. I'm a faithful listener to the Wednesday conversation. I have been since day one. I'm going to have to confess to you listeners, all 12 of you out there, uh, I have not been reading along. Do you, but you have a copy of the book. I Did do. you steal that from someone? You know what? I bought it and oh. then just haven't touched it. Well, so that's great. You're doing you're, such a great job, This is your Bob. chance. Yeah. <laughs> this, is this, was, this is beautiful. I loved it. It was what great we, to read. What you're saying is we've talked about it so intelligently that you haven't felt a need to read it because you've been so ministered to by our conversations <laughs> I'm about a little it. bit of a Cliff's Notes guy, and so mm. is that still a thing? Spark Notes. I think it's Spark, Spark Notes now. Okay. That's like the internet version. I just dated myself. Um, yeah, so you guys have been doing a great job with that. Thanks. I haven't <laughs> felt a need to actually read the book yet. Thanks, Kev. But Appreciate now that, that I'm sitting in the seat, keeping it warm, I felt like, you know, I should probably read this chapter. Here we so are. I did. Um, let me survey a few things that Bovink does, and then I just want to, we're just going to talk about um, the content and, and sort of the stuff together. But what Bovink does is he starts out from the Bible by saying, hey, if we're going to ask who is Jesus, and we're going to try to answer that question in the Bible, there's a few themes we see in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They tell us about this historical person named Jesus who lived and died in Palestine. And the emphasis of the Gospels is very historical. It's very much on the person of Jesus and what he taught and what he did and how he was crucified. That seems to be the focus of the Gospels is these historical events. Then there's the letters and the epistles of the New Testament, which have a different focus than the Gospels have. He says they do not chronicle the history of the life of Jesus. 
but point out the significance which that life has for the redemption of mankind. So the first thing he's doing is, is acknowledging in the New Testament, we have a couple different kinds of literature. We have the Gospels and we have epistles and letters. The Gospels tell us the history. The epistles and letters work out the implications of that for God's work of redemption. And so he says, that leads us then to two realities about who Jesus is. We have this historical figure, Jesus of Nazareth, and then we have this description of, of the title Christ or the title Lord. He talks about how the, the gospel writers tend to focus on Jesus of Nazareth, but then they also speak of him as Jesus the Christ or as Jesus Christ or as the Christ sometimes, and they especially start using the name Lord as they proclaim who Jesus is and what he did. And so what Bavink wants you to understand as a reader is when the, when the New Testament uses the name Lord, they're drawing in a name that's a, a phrase, a word that's very significant in the Old Testament and that's often used of God's covenant name in the Old Testament. And so the New Testament writers very explicitly are saying something about who Jesus Christ is. They are wanting you as a reader to understand this is not just some normal human being, but this is Christ the Lord. And so... Um, as a systematic theologian, one thing Bavig wants to do is say, hey, here's let's talk about the divine attributes and works that are ascribed to Jesus in the New Testament. I want to read a little paragraph from page 298 that shows you how to do good systematic theology. So what Bavig has here, he's going to list a bunch of stuff, a bunch of data about Jesus, and then in every there's all these parentheses with Bible verses. So Basically, what he's doing is he's just sort of, it's almost like, think about it like a bullet-pointed list, all these things the New Testament says about Jesus, and then each one has a little Bible verse after it. And what Bavik is doing is he's just collating for us the biblical material. He's saying, hey, let's take all the, here's all these statements the Bible makes about Jesus. Okay, so here, let me read the uh, paragraph. The figure we encounter in the person of Christ on the pages of Scripture is a unique figure. On the one hand, he is very man. He became flesh and came into the flesh, John 1, 14, and 1 John 4, 2, and 3. He bore the likeness of sinful flesh, Romans 8, 3. He came of the fathers according to the flesh, Romans 9, 5. Of Abraham's seed, Galatians 3, 16. Of Judah's line, Hebrews 7, 14. And of David's generation, Romans 1, 3. He was born of a woman, Galatians 4, 4. Partook of our flesh and blood, Hebrews 2, 14. Possessed a spirit, Matthew 27, 50. A soul, Matthew 26, 38 and a body, 1 Peter 2.24, and was human in the full true sense. As a child, he grew and increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man, Luke 2.40 and 2.52. He was hungry and thirsty, sorrowful and joyful, was moved by emotion and stirred to anger. He placed himself under the law and was obedient to it until death, Galatians 4, Philippians 2, Hebrews 5. He suffered, died on the cross, and was buried in the garden. He was without form or comeliness. When we looked upon him, there was no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised, unworthy of esteem, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief, Isaiah 53. So what you see him doing there is just saying, here's a bunch of data points that the Bible says about this person, Jesus. And what systematic theology tries to do is to gather up all that biblical material and say, okay, so what can we conclude based on all of this data? And what Bavink is leading us toward is to say, this is... The Bible says Jesus is truly human. He's very man. He had a human body and human emotions and responded in human ways to things that happened, and he died a real human death. But they also wants to say, the Bible also ascribes divine attributes to him. 
And so in the next section, the next paragraph, he says, Jesus is eternal as God himself, having been with him in the beginning, John 1.1. 1, 1. He is the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, Revelation 22.13. He is omnipresent, so that though walking about on the face of the earth, he is simultaneously in the bosom of the Father, John 1.18 and 3.13. After his glorification, he remains with his church and fulfills all in all, Matthew 28, verse 20, Ephesians chapter 1. He's unchangeable and faithful and the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13, he is omniscient so that he hears prayers. Acts 124 and 759. He's the one who knows all men's hearts. Acts 124. He is omnipotent so that all things are subjected unto him and all power is given to him in heaven and on earth. Uh, Matthew 28, 18. So he's, again, just saying, so we have these two pools of data, really. We have this stuff about Jesus being really, really human, and then we have this all this stuff that ascribes to him divine attributes and says that he is the source of divine works. Here's the conclusion. All this points to a unity between Father and Son, between God and Christ, such as nowhere else exists between the Creator and his creature. Even though Christ has assumed a human nature, Christ does not in Scripture stand on the side of the creature, but on the side of God. He partakes of God's virtues and of his works. He possesses the same divine nature. And so all of this um, is sort of Boving's biblical basis to get us to what the early church confessed about Christ, which is that he is fully man and fully God at the same time, that in one person uh, the, the, the real divine nature and a real human nature are both present, such that Christ is fully man and fully God, and he's going to take us into the early church councils as they sort of wrestled through what we call in theology Christology. Who, who is Jesus? What is the right thing for us to profess and say about who Christ is? And so we're going to get to four early Christological heresies, which I like a theologian who's going to say, hey, here's four names you might need to know, four guys that are heretics that you should try not to be like. Um, so we'll get to that in a second. Kevin, any thoughts uh, based on what we've already surveyed so far? Yeah, I love these two pages because it just, I wrote down, it just increases your worship. I mean, depending on what your tradition is that you grew up in, you probably tend towards relating to Jesus more as a man, as a human, sensing his emotion, his feelings, his life events, or you relate more to him as he's transcendent, he's God, he's out there, he's other. And so it's really fun to sit back and just see Bob Inc. go from beginning to end, from scripture to scripture and and give you a full full sweep of who is Christ as a man but also who is Christ as God and cuz a lot of times when we read the new testament we're kind of we're covering both those territories at the same time and so we don't differentiate them as quickly and as easily as he did here and so i just found myself appreciating his humanness in new and fresh ways but also oh yeah he is God he is supreme and that's a full confession that's where i tend towards is i can relate to jesus pretty easily as transcendent but seeing him as a man who had feelings and emotions and a human experience is more challenging for me to grapple with in my day-to-day. So I, I just loved it. Well, in what you said, I think those are the two mistakes we can make, right, is some of us err too far on the extreme of only re- only emphasizing the humanness of Jesus. Some of us err too far only emphasizing the divine nature of Jesus. And, and what a robust Christology makes us do is to hold all of that together and to say, mm-hmm. this is who Jesus is, is all of this, which is what makes him worthy of worship. Um, so... Bavink says, hey, based on the biblical material, you have two realities. You have this real person who is very man, who's truly human, named Jesus of Nazareth. And yet the scriptures seem to say that this person shares in the divine nature. And so what do we do with that? What do we do with this 
human being who also shares in the divine nature. That breaks all of our categories, right? We, mm-hmm. you know, like he said, there's creator and there's creature, there's divine, and then there's human, and then there's Jesus who seems to mess with all our categories. And so here is how Bavink describes what the church has done as it has thought about those biblical materials. When one and the same person shares in the divine nature and is also very man, it follows that an effort at definition must be made. And at a sharp delineation of how that person is related both to the deity and to the world. And when this effort was made, a path of error and heresy defined itself again to the right and to the left. All right. So he says, hey, there's, you're always going to fall off one side of the horse if you're not careful to hew closely to the biblical tradition. And here's the way that that happened in history. Early in the church, there was um, a, a heretic named Arius um, condemned at the Council of Nicaea. Arius's famous statement was, there was a time when Christ was not. Arius reasoned that um, it, it, you know, Christ was not merely human. There's obviously something divine about him. but So he's superior to every other created being, but that Christ was still a creature. There remained a time when he did not exist, and he at some time was called into existence by God. So that's Arianism. That's the, the mistake of Arius. And then he says, however, in the attempt to hold to the unity of God and at the same time grant to the person of Christ the place of honor proper to him, it's easy to fall into another error named after its most, most foremost proponent, Sibelius. And Sibelianism, I, liked, I, I had a seminary professor who talked about this as the God who wears three different hats. It's also called modalism. Mm-hmm. So St. Patrick's Day, we celebrate this uh, every year because there's a funny video about uh, modalism. But the idea here is that um, there's one divine being. Sometimes he wears the hat of the Father. Sometimes he wears the hat of the Son. Sometimes he wears the hat of the Holy Spirit. So there's one divine being who manifests himself differently over the course of the centuries. So there's only one God. It's just he wear, he kind of shows up differently. You know, Sometimes he's dressed in a suit. Sometimes he comes in a you know, beach attire. Just, it depends wow. on how he shows up. Um, that was the heresy of Sibelius. And the early church, um, as it weighed both of those proposals, Arius's idea that Christ was a really, really exalted being but created, and Sibelius's proposal that maybe there's one God who just shows up three different ways in history. Uh, at the Council of Nicaea in 325, the church confessed its faith in one God, the Father Almighty, creator of all things, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was begotten by the Father as the only begotten, that is, out of the being of God, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things in heaven and earth were made. We we used this profession last week in our public worship, and it's just this classic statement that the church landed on to say, what do we say about Christ? Now, um, he says, oh, well, that didn't put an end to the doctrinal disputes. Um, actually, what happened is out of the Council of Nicaea, then you had some new errors that arose um, because, you know, okay, great. So Christ is God. Um, now now we have two new errors. Nestorius concluded that if there were two natures in Christ, there also had to be two persons, two selves, which could only be made one by some moral tie, such as that which obtains in the marriage of a man and a woman. So Nestorianism is this idea that there's two persons in Christ. There's, I don't know how that works. He's like schizophrenic or like he's <laughs> multiple personalities. It's like he's, he's two, he's two persons in one body. And Eutyches, um, 
came to the conclusion that if in Christ there was but one person, then the two natures had to be so mingled together that they made something new. So he, so Eutyches, the, the Eutychian heresy, Eutyches, his error. I don't know how you say that <laughs> I think you're in various it. forms. Yeah. Yep, crushing it. The, the, the error of Eutyches was that if Christ is both divine and human, then those things meld together and make him into like a third thing. You know, it's like when you stuck put stuff in a blender and then blend it up. When you make a smoothie, you're not just having blueberries and kiwi. It's just you're putting them in the blender and blending them up, and it's a blueberry kiwi smoothie. And that's what that's what Jesus is. He's like, put the divine human nature in a blender. You get the third thing that's not either of those two things, but it's kind of it tastes like both. Mm-hmm. How do you like that? Is that a good analogy? I think it works. I'm trying to just blueberries I'm and trying kiwis. to speak the language the of the analogy. People. That's right. I, I don't know why kiwis came to mind. It was just it's summertime. I feel like the yeah. you know the blueberries Sounds and the kiwis refreshing. are. That's what I see in the store. <laughs> um, so, at the Council of Chalcedon in 451, the Church affirmed that this one person of Christ consisted of two natures, not mingled together, and not separated or divided. Okay. So that's the that's the confession of the, the sort of like full robust Christology of the church is Jesus is very God of very God begotten not made being of one substance with the Father and his two natures are not mingled together and not divided from one another. So um, the the interesting thing about this is a great statement from Bavink and this is what you have to understand about Christology, page three hundred four, all those expressions which are employed in the confession of the church and in the language of theology are not designed to explain the mystery, but rather to maintain it. And that's, so so if you think about like, what does it mean for Christ to have one person, but two natures? The point is, um, you can't really explain that. We're just trying to maintain the mystery of that because none of the rest of us have two natures, right? I am one person with one nature. You are one person with one nature. Uh, Christ is one person with both a divine nature and a human nature. And all that we're trying to do as we profess that is to maintain the mystery of that rather than to try to explain it. Because there is a sense in which the nature of that, because of what it is, is unexplained. It's mysterious. It's mysterious to us. How could Christ be one person with both a divine nature and a human nature? Um, So... That's that's in a very basic way, Bavink building out, starting from Scripture and then going into the history of the church. Hey, here's what Christology is. And here's the, um, he quotes on page 306, he doesn't list it as a quote, but he uses the exact language here that the early church used following Athanasius, which is that even when he became what he was not, he remained what he was. So when we talk about what did it mean for the incarnate, what does it mean for God to become human? It means without losing what he was, he became what he was not. He added to himself a human nature. He didn't um, leave behind his divine nature in heaven, nor did he like fuse divine and human into something else, but he became what he was not for us and for our salvation, as the Nicene Creed says. Mm. Kevin, yeah, thoughts? It makes me really appreciate church history for obvious reasons, but we can look back and say, what were these people thinking? I mean, aren't we reading the same Bible? Uh, but when you put yourself in their shoes in the early church, you know, they were doing the best they could. And so you can resonate and sympathize with heretics, which is not something yeah. I usually would like to declare publicly, but I'm doing it. You heard it here first. Uh, these people are doing what they could. And so I say that because 
one one man or woman with their Bible can come to some pretty strange conclusions, right? Yes. And so it makes you super thankful for the church, for brothers and sisters in the faith, and for especially for these men and women who went before us to reason through these things. And I appreciate, I'll say this, I think the, the councils obviously give us creeds, which I'm incredibly thankful for, and yet I don't want to get ahead of us, but he points to, hey, is this actually, is this equal on scripture? Is this redefined scripture? No, it actually just sheds light on what scripture already says. And so it gives us a simple summary because there's ways we can sit down with a, a modern day Arian, a Jehovah's Witness, and say, hey, we're reading the same Bible, but we're reaching different conclusions. Well, how do I know if what I'm bringing to the table is different than what you're bringing to the table? Well, the creeds help us have a sense of here's what the historical Christian faith professes. And so let's look at that. That's, that's not outside of scripture per se. It's drawing on the scriptures to give us the correct boundaries and guardrails to have a, a sound reasoned orthodox conversation about the nature of Christ. And so without these things, we're left to ourselves and our own devices in some ways, which we're finite, right? So you're saying Jehovah's Witnesses are modern day Aryans. What a great connection for Man, the average person. That's you know, why theology matters is because these errors tend to repeat themselves. Mm-hmm, that's right. There's nothing new under the sun. Yeah. At the end of the chapter, Bavik also wants to point out, and this is a helpful thing to notice, is that when we talk about Christ being one person with a divine nature and a human nature, he says, hey, anything about either of those natures can be predicated of the person. So that's what, So here's how he says it. One and the same person, or sorry, two, one and the same person, divine and human attributes and works, eternity and time, omnipresence and limitation, creative omnipotence and creaturely weakness are ascribed. So in other words, this is why when we talk about Jesus, it is equally appropriate to say, Jesus is the word who existed with the Father before there was time. And also to say Jesus was born of a Virgin Mary. Because though we're talking about his divinity and his humanity, we are talking about the one person, Jesus, who possesses both divinity and humanity. So so the the theologically correct and precise way to do this is not to say Jesus' human nature was born of Mary, but to say Jesus was born of Mary. And not to say Jesus' divine nature existed with the Father, but to say Jesus existed with the Father before there was time. Um so, so b- these two natures united in one person, when we speak of that person, it is appropriate to speak of, we can predicate things of either of those natures, and we're talking about the one person, Christ, in whom uh, those two natures cohere without division and without confusion. Uh, the other way he says it on page 309 is, Christ, in the unity of his person, commands all the attributes and powers which are proper to both natures. Um, the Reformed Confession has always repudiated a welding of the two natures into one or a communication of the properties of the one nature to the other. It was such a view which resulted in a mingling and confusion of them and therefore in the denial of the difference between God and man, creator and creature. So what he's saying is um, it, Christ in the unity of his person commands all the powers of both. And so we think about a passage like Philippians 2 where it says, you know, though he was was in the form of God, he emptied himself. Some theologians um, have read that as, oh, so he left behind his divinity or he somehow like left a piece of himself in heaven and came and limited himself on earth. The proper way to understand what Philippians 2 is saying is to say, uh, when Christ was incarnate, he chose not to access aspects of his divinity, which he still retained property of, but chose not to use them. So, you know, how do you explain the fact that Jesus says, hey, um, of that, neither this, neither, no, no one knows except the Father, right? Of the, of the day and the time, no one knows, not even, I know, 
well, I thought you were one with God. How do you not know that, right? Um, the, the answer is because Jesus is limiting his accessing of the properties of his divine nature, but he doesn't fail to possess that nature, if that makes sense. Um, so, Kevin, how do you feel like you did a good job sort of talking about the practicality of this? When we're thinking about, okay, this is, you know, it's important to have a healthy Christology. How does this deepen us in our discipleship, in our worship of Christ? What, what good does it do us to know, okay, there's two natures in one person and, you know, Christ is both divine and human. So what? How does that, what, is, what difference does that make in sort of our living out of the faith? It's a good question. I was actually going to ask you that, Bob. <laughs> so thanks for shooting that one my way. Because, awesome. Because, you know. Most of us are not going to sit at some church council council in church history and try to determine the real nature of Jesus. Thankfully, others have done that. And so the reality is when we sit in our living room, I'm staring across the room at, at Bethany or you and saying, yeah, why does this actually matter? This does matter. Um, I think Bobbing touches on this, but the fact that Jesus has to be both human and both divine to be a true, I think he uses savior and servant are kind of the two paradigms he, he chooses. And so we need Jesus to be both because if he's only one or the other, then we're left in one of these errors, we're missing, we're missing him. And we're not actually experiencing faith in Christ and through, through him to, to experience the relationship with God. So I think we need Jesus in his humanness. I mean, we just went through John. I can't tell you how many times I referenced John 11 after that sermon, because so many of us forget yet though Jesus was divine, though he was savior, he also was a person. He, God felt the things that you feel that I feel. He felt everything that we feel under the, under the, in life under the sun. And so that helps me sense that, okay, God actually does know what I'm experiencing now. He knows my suffering. He knows my sorrows. He knows the ways that this earth and this world can be really confusing and disorienting. And um, yeah, he's, he's a man acquainted with grief, right? So that helps me when I'm in the living room, sitting across from someone who's experiencing a lot of hardship, I can actually say with confidence, God knows exactly what you're experiencing. Maybe not to the same degree, but we know that he walked this earth and lived a life, right? Back to what you, you started us with. There was, Bob Inc. grounds us that Jesus actually had a life. He had a story. He had an upbringing. He had, you know, all those things apply to him in, in the same way that they apply to us. So it just, I think that's what brings Jesus eminent. It brings him closer to us as we walk with him, but it also increases our worship of him because he is the only God man. There's no one else like him. So he's worthy of our worship. All the Reformed Confessions, Kevin, point out what you just said, which is, Unless Christ is both divine and human, he can't be our Savior for the simple reason that if he's not truly human, he can't stand in our place. Mm -hmm. If he's sort of like kind of human but not like us, right? Mm -hmm. If he's very divine and he, you know, he condescends down toward us, but he does not, he's not one of us, mm -hmm. then he can't stand in our place and take our punishment for sin. However, if he's not divine, he can't actually conquer sin, right? And mm -hmm. so the holding together of his divinity and his humanity is essential to what redemption is. And it is essential to our worship of Christ. I think actually that um, probably the mistake of our day, you, it was interesting because you said, you know, your tendency is to see him more in his divinity. Um, that's probably a good tendency. I think that the tem the temptation more in our day, living in a very therapeutic age, is to mm. want is to want to sort of like overemphasize the humanity of Jesus and his identification with our sufferings even sometimes in ways that are theologically suspect, like, well, t did Jesus feel transgenderism or did he feel like, mm. did he feel fallen sexual desires? Mm. I think the Bible doesn't really tell us much about that, but there are people who sort of take the humanity of Christ and apply it in ways that, that sort of make you go, I, 
that makes me a little nervous about how we're sort of thinking about the humanity of Christ in those kinds of struggles. But to your point, the the statement of Hebrews that he can, you know, that he has suffered in every way or been tempted in every way yet mm-hmm. without sin. And the statement of Isaiah that he's a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. There there is a realness to the human experience of Jesus that is identical with ours and yet different from ours, right? Mm-hmm. That, that he does not fall into sin and he does not give himself into temptation in the ways that we are prone to. Um, and so all of the the good, healthy theological confessions throughout history have pointed to the the uniqueness of the reality of both the divinity and humanity of Jesus is essential to what it means for him to be our redeemer. And actually what the two chapters coming after this in Bavink are he's going to talk about the um, the humiliation of Christ and the exaltation of Christ, which is this biblical motif. Sometimes, you know, it's, it's back to that Philippians 2. He humbled himself to the point of death, therefore God has highly exalted him. So the biblical writers seem to speak in terms of the condescension of Christ to come low and take on humanity. So think about like him stepping out of heaven and entering into time and space and history. And then also to emphasize the exaltation of Christ, him stepping back into taking our humanity with him into heaven. And as we think about where is history headed, part of what we're thinking about is the fact that Christ, Christ didn't just like appear in history and then vanish. What he did is he assumed a human nature and then took that nature with him into heaven, mm. which is the hope for us, is that mm. he's, we're not just sort of like living here for a while and then who knows what's going to happen, but actually our very humanity is going to be completed and mm. taken into the new heavens and the new earth in a way that the resurrection of Jesus sort of prefigures for us. And that's our hope in our humanity and in our suffering is that this isn't all there is. This is not where the story ends. Yeah, that gets to... You're tapping on sanctification, whereas I think your statements before were highlighting, hey, the need for atonement and justification for him to be fully man and fully God. But to to what you just said, I think I've heard it phrased, Jesus became like us so that we could become like him, yeah. right? And so him taking on flesh enabled us to then take on his divinity in some mysterious way, right? We can't say, oh, here's how that's going to happen. It's just, hey, that's the promise of the future hope that we have in Christ. And so that's good news. And it's because of the things that... Bavink is highlighting the two natures in one man and one person. That's why we have that hope. Yes. So it's good news. And again, Bavink um, modeling for us well, that again, that phrase that the, the language of theology is not designed to explain the mystery, but rather to maintain it. And so what it means to be good theologians is to say, we want to put as much language as we can to describe what the Bible says. And, and at the end of the day, recognize that we're just trying to express a mystery. Um, and that mystery is God with us, you know, the hope of glory. And uh, so Bavink, I think, does a really fruitful job in this chapter being exhaustive and scriptural and giving us even this background of church history and then saying, and really all I'm doing here is trying to maintain this mystery against those who would corrupt it. Um, yeah, he he uses, you know, you, you finished on page 309. He does conclude with a, I appreciated this image he uses about marriage between a man and a woman. He says, man and woman, no matter how intimately united in love, remain two persons. God and man, although united by the most intimate love, remain different in essence, but in Christ, man is the same subject as the word, which is in the beginning was with God and himself was God. This is the unique, incomparable, and unfathomable union of God and man. And then he quotes John 1.14 and says, In the beginning and end of all wisdom is this, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the one 
the only begotten of the Father, excuse me, full of grace and truth. And so I think he just sums up this as much as we can in our human ways, right? Comprehending this union between two people, even though that's an imperfect picture, it still gets at something that we're trying to grasp in this earthly life. But he's different though. It's still just a foretaste or it's a picture of something that is more mysterious and deep. Yeah. Well, praise the Lord for the divine and human nature of Christ, which um, makes him worthy of our worship and our adoration. Listeners, thanks for engaging with us. Again, if you uh, are interested in the book that Kevin owns but has only read this chapter of, um, you can feel free to buy it. It's called The Wonderful Works of God. Totally flamed on <laughs> the conversation. No, no. It was, it was, it's okay. fantastic. In jest. Yes. Uh, so we'll be uh, tackling next month uh, The Work of Christ in His Humiliation, Chapter 17, and we'll see you on that third Wednesday in August. Until then, farewell. The goal of this podcast is to equip our own church for discipleship and mission. So if you're a Christian or a church leader in another context, we thank you for listening in, and we pray that this conversation might be helpful to you as you minister in your context. We love to hear from listeners, so if you have thoughts, questions, or future podcast topics, send an email to podcast at cdomaha.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time for another episode of the Wednesday Conversation.